0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist oncologist and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy and that's what you're gonna get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back in the studio, and we have a great show in store for you. I've got Dr. Ava Katsoulakis and Dr. Michael Kelly, and they're going to be talking with us about a new paper in the JCO entitled Comparison of Annotation Services for Next-Generation Sequencing in a Large-Scale Precision Oncology Programme. Boy, that sounds like a mouthful, but what this is really about is what happens when you compare recommendations for genetic testing for cancer tumors in two different annotation services. You're not going to want to miss this discussion. It is riveting. But first, I've got a few things to talk about. As promised, I've got to nag you, because this is the last week of our pledge drive, but I'm also going to talk about what does it really mean to be the best hematologist, oncologist, and XOR, That's what you've been waiting for. So you're going to hear it here on plenary sessions. Stay tuned. First up. Well, this is it. You've waited it out. This is the last week of the semi-annual pledge drive. And after this week, you won't have to listen to me pestering you about supporting this podcast, even though I know you're listening and I know you enjoy this podcast this week. I wanted to outline the ways in which you could support this podcast on our semi-annual pledge drive. Number one, of course, you could back us on patreon.com. Your support is much appreciated. Number two, you need to write a written review on the iTunes store, whether you like this podcast or not. If you really listen to it all the time, you got to be writing a review of some sort. And number three, tell somebody in hematology oncology about this podcast. If you think it's worth their time. Now, I've made a little observation from looking through our supporters on Patreon.com. And what have I learned? I've learned that I've got a lot of friends in the European Union, and I don't have as many friends on this side of the pond in the U.S. of A. What's going on, America? I know by all the demographics that you are the number one consumers in the U.S. of the podcast. Europe, they come in second, but... They are much more hardcore fans willing to support this show. And you in the U.S., come on, don't don't give them another recovery trial. Don't fall short again. You can do better. Step up. Support this podcast. So on that positive note, you're not going to listen to me complain about this issue until the end of this year. So you've skated by. You're just the kind of person who's happy to wait out NPR. I know you are. I know the type of person you are. Well, You bought yourself a few months. Okay, you bought yourself a few months. We'll continue to make this podcast, but don't test me. Don't test me. All right, moving on. Being an excellent hematologist, oncologist. You know, a few months ago, I did an episode where I talked I think, somehow, in passing, about what it means to be an excellent hematologist-oncologist. I talked about the sort of decision-making that goes on, how you sort of prioritize and value diagnostic workup, follow-ups, surveillance scans, additional testing, biopsies to create the most parsimonious treatment plan that makes sense, taking into account all of the patient's comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. And I got some excellent feedback, which was the following from Christopher Booth. When you spoke about being the best physician, you really emphasized being knowledgeable and having wisdom. I know you well enough to know that you also consider the best physician to be one who shows compassion, empathy, and excellent communication skills. You missed that in your monologue. Well, Dr. Booth is right. I did miss it. And if I had to try to justify why I missed it, it was because you know, it was not what I was thinking about in the heat of the moment of whenever I said that, because contrary to popular wisdom, this is not a scripted show. This is really is a lot of extemporaneous speaking. I think that's not, That's what people don't really, really get about Plenary Session, that this is not a scripted show. So it didn't come to me in that moment. But of course, the other thing I could say is that it's just so obvious that that would be so important. Um, but Dr. Booth is right. And I want to, I want to expound upon it. I want to expand upon it. I think You know, it really is, I don't want to put a percentage on, but it really is a substantive, maybe, maybe half, maybe more than half of the job of being a hematologist oncologist. Um, You know, you, you, you want to be really present in that room. And when you're a trainee, you have the, you have the privilege, I think, of being able to shadow people who do it. And you see a range of people who do it. You see people who do it, I think, competently, You see some people who do it a little less than competently. But you see a lot of people do it well, and you see some people who are stellar at it. And I think the thing about being there in the moment and being in the room and being the best physician and the sort of the humanistic side of being a physician, um, one of the key things that I emphasize in my mind is you have to be present. What does that mean? You can't be thinking about something else. You can't, I disagree with people who, who chart while they talk to the patient. I think that's not a, not terrific i mean i think that i don't want to be in a room talking to somebody and have them have two hands on the keyboard typing and kind of have their face askew um, to my face and not making eye contact i think you have to sit there and you got to be close you got to pull up your stool you got to do an exam get the patient on the exam table you got to be close and you got to make eye contact and you got to listen to what people say and you got to pick up on things that aren't being said And you got to look at the body language in the room and you got to figure out who else is in there and why and how they feel. And you got to read the room and you got to know when it's appropriate to ask some questions and when you might say, you know what, perhaps you might give us a minute alone to talk about some things or, and ask somebody to step aside or to think of a sort of clever way in which you can kind of get that uh, separation, get the patient all to yourself. Um, There are of course moments where You need that, and there are of course moments where you want to bring everyone in. um, Bring—is there somebody waiting for you in the lobby who wants to be a part of this discussion? Maybe we should bring them in. Um, Maybe we shouldn't keep them out there. It's up to you, of course. Um, You want to be able to read that and get a sense of that. And as Dr. Booth says, compassion, um, empathy—you know—it's—it's—it's flippant to say a side effect is well-tolerated. It's compassionate to really understand what it means to have a side effect. And a lot of these side effects that, you know, these investigators call well-tolerated are no such thing when you're in the room and when you really hear people talk. You need to be clear. I think clear messages, simple messages. I think even those of us who have trained and understand the vernacular of medicine, at the end of the day, we crave simple, clear messages. But that doesn't mean overstating certainty that's not there. I think you can be clear and leave open all the ambiguities and uncertainties that often do exist. And I think you ought to do that. Um, Dr. Booth is right. If I, I didn't talk about this when, when I did that episode, but it's not because I don't think it's important. It's because I think it's so overwhelmingly important, which is that you know there's more to being a doctor than just getting the right answer or knowing the right answer or knowing how to talk to other doctors. You need to know how to talk to your patient and how to show compassion and empathy, but also to preserve some distance so you can have objectivity. To be sad when they're sad, but also to preserve some distance so that you can still guide them, move them forward. I think it is an art of medicine. It's, it's the privileged part of what we do. It's really the honor part of what we do. And it is why I feel like if somebody were to ask me, you know, compartmentalize the things you do in your life. You know, you like to, you know, have this podcast where you're, you're hopefully trying to communicate some things to the audience. Um, you like to publish academic papers, and 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 that has led itself to writing, you know, certain books. Um, also, I think with the goal of persuading and and changing the minds of some people. Um, and you also see patience. If somebody said to me, you could only do one of those three things, I think the answer is going to clearly be seeing patience because that's the thing that nothing else compares against, that it is a balancing act of having to be intellectually sharp and curious, but also having to be emotionally present and vulnerable and really draws your whole self into it. And so I thank Dr. Booth for giving me the opportunity really to clarify that um, and to, to talk about it more. Dr. Booth's made a second point, which is worth discussing. I do not think it is necessary or realistic that every practicing oncologist has the same level of detailed understanding of the nuanced literature as a small group of serious academics. The large clinical volumes of a busy community hospital outside academia do not allow the privilege of time to understand the complexities of some of these nuanced issues. Not sure what the balance is, but sometimes I think being a solid physician who knows his or her own limits, but is willing to reach out for expert advice and show humility when they do not know the answer is equally as valuable. Dr. Booth writes, I know that you will agree about point number one, which is the compassion part, but I am curious what you think about point number two, which is what the average doctor needs to know. You know, Dr. Booth is, is an astute guy, Chris Booth. He's a smart guy. Um, I guess I, I'm deeply sympathetic with where he's coming from, which is that whatever you do in medicine, from being a cardiologist to being a surgeon to being a, um, a hematologist, oncologist, I think we do have to recognize that not everyone who's practicing is going to be able to invest the same degree of time that it does take to get into the nitty-gritty statistical nuances of clinical trials. In other words, I think not everybody who practices should aspire to do what I think trialists do, what statisticians do. To some degree, what I do is sort of a health policy meta researcher slash oncologist. You know, I don't think you should aspire to do what we do. And here's where I think I might carve it a little bit differently than Dr. Booth does. One, I guess I would say I concede that in a perfect world, I think his model is right. You know, in a perfect world where guidelines are really written by unconflicted oncologists who do understand statistical principles, who do not consult for companies and are not, you know, Constantly making notorious errors, which we're going to talk about in this podcast. I think it is reasonable that we could have had a system where practicing oncologists don't have to delve so deeply into this and they can trust the guidelines and they can follow, you know, journal summaries and things like that. As I know, they really do do a large degree in internal medicine because there's a lot of information and they have higher quality resources in internal medicine. They get, I think, better journal summaries from a number of sort of independent organizations. So I do think Dr. Booth is right that, you know, I aspire to live in that world. I think the question is, in the world we do live in, where you can't, I think, put tremendous stock in things like the NCCN which have notorious problems and conflicts and flaws you can't trust the regulators you know in dr booth's world i think um i i would want good regulators who follow the principles outlined in the book malignant where i detail how drug regulation should proceed Um, but we don't live in that world and so as long as we don't live in that world i think unfortunately some of the work of doing this kind of work does get transferred a bit to the average practicing doctor. That said, I still agree with him that they're not going to be able to, in a busy clinical practice, have the same time it takes to delve into Selinexor, or to delve into Beacon Trial the way I have taken that time uh, to delve into it. And I don't blame a busy practicing clinician for not doing that. And I guess to some degree, I am, in by virtue of doing this podcast, trying to do some of that work for you. And I think other people who are interested in sort of critical appraisal of drugs Um, maybe we do need to kind of get together and pool our resources a little bit. I know I've been talking with some of the great pharmacists in University of Michigan. Maybe, you know, you're welcome to come on the show, email us at the podcast. Um, Let's, let's make many hands do some work. I mean, what we're doing, I think we're trying to do in the show is um, give you guys out there who aren't going to want to spend a couple hours reading through all this, some sort of general take home high level points and to also kind of teach you how I think about papers, which is actually the more you kind of understand how I think about it, I think the faster it will be for you to read it. So anyway, I guess I'm a little bit torn about this issue because I'm deeply sympathetic to what Chris is saying. Um, on the other hand, I think the reality of the world as we live in is such that we don't yet have that luxury. And I think I said it before, you know, when I set out to be a medical doctor, I I imagined in my mind that I lived in a world like... Um, I think Chris describes where I could have been a practicing doctor and just sort of trusted uh, a lot of information that was given to me. And then I was burnt uh, a number of times and I read a lot more and realized that that is not probably going to be the case in oncology in the near term. Um, So as long as it is the way it is, I think there is more onus on practicing doctors to roll up their sleeves and get into the data. But I do hope that this podcast and others step up to the plate and try to do as Chris points out, the hard work of critical appraisal and pass along the high points. So on that positive note, you know I really appreciate the uh, letter from Dr. Booth, who I know um, is, a, is a terrific fan of the podcast and great friend of the show. So thanks so much for that. And um, and I hope to have him back on a future podcast so we can discuss this at length. And on that positive note, we will switch to Selenexor. Before we move to Selenexor, i reminded myself because i was taking a cool sip of water i just want to let you know what that sounds like ah, it's a great great glass of water i actually put a little lemonade in the top that added a lot of a lot of zing to the to the glass now the reason i give you the absolutely annoying sounds of me drinking water Just to remind you that the Malignant audiobook is out. And in the original draft of the audiobook, there was one chapter, chapter 14, where apparently I guzzled the equivalent of two and a half liters of water. And a number of listeners complained that it led them to have to use the restroom frequently and it was an unpleasant listening experience but we have corrected that and so folks out there who want to get more of this podcast can check out the malignant audiobook now with drinking water redacted that's right drinking water is to our audiobook what inclusion criteria was to the original beacon protocol it is completely redacted and you won't have to deal with it and i know you didn't want to so on that positive note we'll turn to selenexor selenexor i've got just 20 points for selenexor number one yes you know what i'm gonna say it's the medical writer part well not really i actually got thrown for a loop this time i read the authorship section and it said aj mk and nk participated in drafting the manuscript and i thought to myself well that's different the three people who are authors of the manuscript drafted the manuscript that is that's different but then i did a little bit of digging who are aj mk and nk Well, it turns out two of them are not the first and last author, AJ and MK, AJ, Anita Joshi, who is a PhD in scientific communications, who's the director of scientific and medical publications for Karyoform Therapeutics, previously was a medical writer for Biogen, then MK, who's the CEO of the company, and then NK, who is the first author, who is the academic author who helped draft the manuscript so that's who drafted the manuscript aj aj a person who's the director of scientific and medical publications mk the ceo and nk the first author and we can all think about what that really means two i'm going to give you a lot of quotes from this paper the 20 points i cover but you need to know selenextra is an uncontrolled study of a drug in relapse refractory, and we're going to see how refractory it is, DLBCL, that led to FDA approval for this agent based on response rate. So already, you know, there's no control arm, the primary endpoint is response rate. And you know, I'm going to say a bunch of things about that. Here are some quotes. Emergent treatment options for this patient population with refractory or relapsed DLBCL include chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, or the parenteral combination of polituzumab-vidotin, a CD79B-directed antibody drug conjugate, with bendamustine and rituximab, as well as lenalidomide plus rituxin and rutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors. That's an interesting sentence, because it had a couple words that I don't normally hear, which is the parenteral combination of pola-BR, parenteral. We're going to come back to that, but It's an interesting word choice to include for just one particular combination that it is paraenteral or IV. Okay, I'll just tell you why they do that. I mean, I have a feeling that that is an intentional word choice by someone who's clever at crafting manuscripts to emphasize that this is an oral agent to sort of upsell the fact that this is oral. Um, But of course, that is a unique word choice that I doubt many people would have written unless it was designed to draw people's mind in that way. Point number three, therefore there's an unmet medical need in patients with refractory relapsed DLBCL. You see, this is something that I would disagree with a little bit. I'm not familiar with as many conditions in relapsed metastatic tumors that have as many treatment options as this condition does. Is this really an unmet medical need? I would think, and I look through the NCCN guidelines, there are at least 10 to 20 different things one might try in this situation, perhaps even more. And thus, I think this is not quite the same as second line HCC. This is DLBCL. After two therapies, but before five therapies, we're gonna come to that. This is DLBCL. There's a number of options you have, including, of course, the right option for the patient in front of you who can tolerate it, which is CAR T cells, probably is something that we're going to come back to here Four, the dose. The dose was 80 milligrams in myeloma. It's 60 milligrams here, so it's lower dose, and that is good because an 80 milligram dose appeared to have a lot of side effects in myeloma. A 60 milligram dose is no walk in the park, as we're going to come to. Number five, this is an uncontrolled study I've written here. Great, great. We don't need uncontrolled studies in relapse refractory tumors. We need controlled studies. In fact, there are many other candidate drugs that this could be tested against. I would say a simple one would be Selinexor versus BR in a randomized control trial. Selinexor versus many, many other chemotherapy combinations that we give in this setting for people we think aren't stem cell transplant eligible. But the other question is, are they really not stem cell transplant eligible? Many patients are are in fact stem cell transplant eligible particularly when they're not over the age of 70 or 75 as many of these patients are not over those advanced ages and so therefore one always wonders in an uncontrolled study if the investigator is just just saying that they are transplant ineligible to get them a shot of this trial before they try something else um, or are they really serious that they're transplant ineligible we just we just never will know that it's also a great reason why you know you need randomized trials in these conditions uncontrolled studies do not actually substantively reduce the time it takes to bring drugs to market because what people forget is in an uncontrolled study one you need to document the response rate often in many tumors based on resist 1.1 we require confirmatory scan to do that Two, among the patients who achieve response, which can happen over the period of study enrollment, once they achieve response, you need to follow them long enough to get some sense of the median duration of response, or even just to know the median is not reached with 12 months or 16 months or something like that. That adds a heck of a lot of study time. You're measuring, typically, the median duration of response in a subset of your study population that takes a long time. In contrast, in randomized trials where death as the primary endpoint, you are constantly evaluating for the primary endpoint, and as Emerson Chen showed in a paper in Jam Internal Medicine called "Study Time Reduction," we found that surrogates in cancer medicine were only associated with a 11-month reduction in study time on the background of seven to eight years, 11-month savings. But in latter lines of therapy, as in this example, there appeared to be no significant reduction in study time, and so I think it is a great lie that these kind of uncontrolled studies speed drugs to market. I believe they don't, and I believe randomized controlled trials, in many cases, might have more quickly found a survival benefit or decrement had one existed for this and other drugs. Meanwhile, uncontrolled studies, you can't compare them to anything. You don't know if it's better than any other options. We have so many other things we could try in this setting. I don't think it has any value here, and it just shows the capitulation of regulators to the folks who pay the bill. He who pays the piper calls a tune. And the FDA's primary source of revenue, of course, are the companies with the user fees. And in fact, they have done a great job of catering to their most important stakeholder. That's the word of the day, stakeholder. You know what Andre Vandross thinks about it from the last episode, which is the industry. And they're giving the industry approvals that they value. We're gonna talk about that after this segment. What is the population? You know, I think we have to be very clear. Um, According to Scholar 1, quote, refractory status was defined as progressive disease as best response to any line of therapy, stable disease as best response to four cycles of frontline therapy, or two cycles of later line therapy, or relapse less than 12 months after stem cell transplant. That's what we think about when we think about refractory. Let's look at the inclusion criteria in this Cellenexor study, at least by, I think it's called protocol number six, I believe, where they have formalized this. "...patients must have received at least two, but no more than five, prior systemic regimens for the treatment of their de novo or transformed DLBCL, including at least one course of anthracycline therapy unless absolutely contraindicated due to cardiac dysfunction, in which case other active agents such as etoposide, benda, or gem must have been given, and two, at least one course of anti-CD20 immunotherapy, example of unless contraindicated due to severe toxicity." Okay, I have a problem here already. Um, if a patient has relapsed on two lines of therapy for large cell lymphoma, they should have gotten rituxin times two. They shouldn't have just gotten rituxin times one. That makes no sense. That makes one worried that you are actually accruing in places where they don't have access to rituxin, which would make the results not very generalizable to places where we do have access to rituxan. Um, two, um, more than two but not more than five, that's very, very unique but it goes on quote for patients whose most recent systemic anti BSCL therapy induced a PR or CR okay so if you had a response at least 60 days must have elapsed since the end of that therapy until the first dose of selinexor for other patients at least 98 days must have elapsed since the end of their most recent therapy so if you did in fact have Quote unquote refractory disease, disease that, you know, was at best stable disease while receiving active therapy. You then had to wait 98 days without anything bad happening to you, maintaining the inclusion criteria of this study, which you can read in the paper and the supplement, um, and not have, not, not meet any of those parameters, keeping your platelets up, for instance, not having any of those other. Untoward side effects in 98 days. This is a, this is a design that is really selecting for not the worst of the worst, but the indolent of the indolent, the, the, the biology that wasn't cured, but nor is it rip roaring DLBCL. And that is inclusion criteria that deeply erodes the generalizability of this study. And in fact, directly makes one wonder if the title is in fact appropriate. Relapse refractory. Quote, palliative local radiation within the therapy free interval was allowed. Non chemotherapy maintenance was not considered anti DLBCL therapy and therefore was allowed during the therapy free interval. Note, this inclusion criteria was included because patients with relapse refractory DLBCL progressing on multi agent chemoimmunotherapy have a high mortality and would not meet inclusion per number four required for this study. That was verified within the initial versions of the protocol. Well, whatever story you wish to tell about that, but I find that to be quite interesting. There's also a protocol amendment called Amendment No. 5 in Protocol Version 6. It says, The protocol has been amended to modify the inclusion criteria, including requirement for response to their last prior therapy, and for patients to have been off their prior therapy for greater than 14 weeks prior to the first dose in this study. That is an interesting, interesting, interesting inclusion criteria. And you can already see what is being done here. You have to progress on two regiments but no more than five if you achieved a prcr to your last regiment you had to have gone without therapy for 60 days if you achieved stable disease to your last treatment refractory by many definitions you had to go 14 weeks why 14 weeks why not 28 weeks why not a year why not two years before anything bad happens to you you can set any absurd number there you want And all you're doing is making a very, very interesting selection filter on your uncontrolled study. And we can talk about what is being achieved with these selection filters broadly in a bit. Number seven, this is a modified intention to treat, quote, The modified intention-to-treat population was used for the primary efficacy and consisted of all patients who received 60 mg of Selenexor under protocol version 6.0 or enrolled under protocol version 7.0 or higher and received at least one dose of Selenexor. Wow, that's an interesting modified intention-to-treat. We'll come back to that. Number eight, this trial was powered to detect a 25% response rate. Number nine, 175 patients were allocated to the 60 mg Selenexor group and 92 to the 100 mg Selenexor group. 100 milligrams of selenexor, interesting. 48 patients were excluded mainly due to enrollment before version six of the protocol. That's interesting. Resulting in the inclusion of 127 patients in the modified intention to treat and safety populations. Point number 10, the median age was 67. 45% of patients were 70 or older. Now, I don't know about you, but um, if I have a 67-year-old who had not yet had a transplant, as the majority of these patients did not have yet have a transplant, I don't think I'd be so keen on enrolling them in a study where transplant was not possible. I would do everything within my powers to get them to auto. The median age from initial DLBC diagnosis to cell and extra treatment was 2.7 years. Oh, that's interesting. Range 0.1 to 26.2. Okay, 2.7 years. I think folks who treat lymphoma can think. Do you think 2.7 years speaks to you as refractory DLBCL? Point 11, there's a 28% response rate. Terrific. Point 12, because Selenexa represents a novel mechanism of action quite distinct from cytotoxic therapy, several patients' courses are highlighted here. End quote. Oh my gosh, this wasn't the results. You mean to tell me you're going to cherry-pick anecdotes to showcase your drug? Come on. The journal needs to strike this down. The journal needs to cut this and say, no, we're not going to allow you to turn a scientific publication into an advertisement. We don't cherry-pick stories. Once we do a cohort study, we report aggregate results. Of course, anyone can find three exemplar cases that will try to show that their product is very beneficial. It proves absolutely nothing, and I don't think that you should even read that portion of the manuscript. Point 13. Quote, last, Selenexer treatment enabled three patients who previously progressed following stem cell transplant to become eligible and undergo CAR-T cell therapies chimeric therapies end quote oh sure if you say so mm-hmm. so these were people who were deemed not CAR-T eligible but selling XOR restored their CAR-T eligibility Alternatively, one might speculate that they may have been CAR-T eligible, but an investigator said, let's try X or we can always do CAR-T later, the investigator might have said. Alternatively, they might have been CAR-T eligible at the outset. Well, one must only wonder about that. And if that is true, one must wonder about how many other patients are really, really ineligible for things like auto and things like CAR-T. Point fourteen. In patients with response the median overall survival was not reached and in patients with stable disease the median overall survival was 18.3 months in patients who had progressive disease are not available. the median overall survival was 4.3 months oh fascinating so patients who achieve response appear to have a median overall survival that was not reached stable disease was 18 months and if you had progressive disease of 4.3 months when you when you break down survival results by depth of response you are committing a age-old fallacy called survival by response and there's an old paper in the jco in 83 that makes this point that it's always misleading the people who may have pan sensitive biology more sensitive to agents who have better substrate who can tolerate the administration of chemotherapy or any cancer treatment they may be destined to have long survival even if you didn't give them the drug And response is really just a surrogate for people who were going to do well or whose tumors were going to shrink with whatever you gave them. It doesn't really show that the drug improves survival in any group. It's just a classic fallacy called analysis by response. And when you see people highlight such things in the manuscript, you really wonder, Point 15. Regarding safety, 98% of patients had at least one treatment emergent adverse event. The most common treatment emergent adverse events occur in 20% or more patients where thrombocytopenia, 61%, nausea, 58%, fatigue, 47%, anemia, 43%, decreased appetite, 37%, diarrhea, 35%, constipation, 31%, neutropenia, 30%, weight loss, 30%, vomiting, 30%, pyrexia, 20%, asthenia, 21%. <sighs> wow. Those are some toxicities. Point 16. Supportive care included additional anti-nausea drugs. Example, oral olanzapine, appropriate fluid and caloric intake, appetite stimulants, psychostimulants, moderate to high doses of thrombopoietin receptor agonists, and GCSF. Well, well, well. That sounds like supportive care that... Um, I don't want to have to be giving because I'd prefer to give a different regimen that may not require so much aggressive supportive care, including TPO agonists. Point 17. Serious adverse events occurred in 48% of patients. The most common serious adverse events were pyrexia, pneumonia, fatigue, anemia, cardiac failure, herbal neutropenia, and sepsis. A total of 73 or 58% of patients died during the study. 25 of these patients died within 30 days of the last dose of Selenex, 20 due to disease progression, and 5 due to treatment for emergent adverse events. Well, that's always a difficult thing to kind of tease apart. Now I notice some things in the discussion. Although cross trial comparisons might be done with caution, several studies have shown that the median overall survival of patients with relapse refractory DLBCL after at least two regimens was less than six months. Oh, is that so? How many of those studies took patients who had at least two but not more than five who had? If they had a PR or CR, had gone 60 days without getting any therapy, but if they just had stable disease, had gone 14 weeks without getting any therapy, did all these other studies build all this into it before you do a cross trial comparison, which should be done with caution, you say, which is what I should say, what I, what I say is it. it can never be done to establish which is better or worse. It can only be done to show that some things are in the same ballpark when they use roughly the same sort of inclusion criteria, same ballpark, which usually prompts equipoise, which prompts a random trial but it can't be done to say what's better or worse so when they go on to say things like the parenteral triplet pola plus br approved for third line therapy showed a median overall of 12 months compared with 4.7 months for patients receiving standard of care br by contrast, the median overall survival for patients in the Saddle study was 9.1 months, and responses correlated with longer overall survival. Oh, really? Really? Your survival was longer? Well, you have very unusual inclusion criteria, don't you? And responses correlated with longer overall survival? Wow, that's called analysis by response. And guess what? That's been inappropriate since at least 1983. So bravo, you have achieved those benchmarks. The apparently longer median overall survival in patients with stable disease in SOTL is consistent with the ability to continue Selinexor indefinitely while there's adequate disease control, which contrasts with chemotherapeutic drugs and some antibody drug conjugates for which cumulative toxicities preclude continuous dosing. Oh boy, I think anyone who's ever given this drug is going to have a lot of uh, qualms about that sentence. Here, I notice another one: the parenteral triplet. They really make a, a, a quite a good. Um, effort to include parenteral every time they mention Pola BR. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. Here's another one. In a comparison to study of Pola BR by Sen and colleagues, single agent Selenexer showed an improved overall adverse event profile. I'm sorry, the journal should strike this sentence. You cannot say, quote, the occurrence of grade 3, 4 thrombocytopenia was similar. You can't say these things. This is not a head-to-head comparison. You can't cross-trial compare AEs you have a very unusual inclusion criteria that, and you're picking people in a different way, perhaps you have picked people in a completely different way and if your people were given this other combination, they'd be living far longer and have far fewer AEs. You don't know. And the journal should not allow this blatant marketeering. So I forget how many I got through. I think I got through 17 points. Not quite the 20 I had set out to. But, you know... I've been very careful not to editorialize too much, but what are the central problems here is this is a highly select cohort with a number of notable and unusual selection filters. It's hard to imagine these selection filters are chosen because that's what gives us the information we need as doctors and patients. It's much more plausible to me. These selection filters really do isolate a population where you have a fair bit of time and you can administer a drug and see what happens. And if you took these selection filters and you applied it to any group of patients, you would probably have many of them being excluded. And the patients you have left, I think, are going to be terrific candidates for BR. They're going to be spectacular candidates for BR. Heck, even some of them might be terrific candidates for something stronger, RIS, RGDP. Take them to auto. You know, that might be where you're going. RDHAP. These are things that I'm not sure that this group of people can't get. You never know until you really see somebody in front of you get to look through their entire chart. So what what are the major takeaways? I think a primary response rate of 28% is not that great in this condition. It's not it's not a good response rate. The selection filters in this trial I believe make it sort of not very comparable with any study, which is not what the discussion says. It says that it should be done with caution. Uh, and no, although cross trial might be done with caution, might be done. Who, who, whoever taught, whoever said they might be done with caution? No, especially not when you've added on these selection filters and only showing me a modified intention to treat protocol where mostly you drop off people who enrolled before protocol amendment six which I believe six was the one that added that 14 weeks where you had to be alive and still eligible for the protocol, not receiving any therapies, um, even though you had stable disease to your last regimen, which is a massive selection filter. Um, And so all the results you're showing me are downstream from that filter. This is really, really something. I mean, I guess I can say, I think there are a number of sort of things in the manuscript that needed to be, struck, rewritten, changed, be pushed back. I mean, I think, you know, um, I know the Lancet Hematology is a good journal, but just in terms of feedback, I think, you know, you just can't let drug companies take advantage of journals in this way. We have to really, really line by line, hold them to task. I mean, they have more resources and person power um, than we do to combat this. But I think this manuscript has a number of things that I've discussed above um, that are simply inappropriate and should not be allowed. Second failure, I mean, the FDA, just total failure to approve this drug. I think this drug should not have been approved. Absolutely not. Uh, do a randomized trial against any real standard of care and let's see what happens to Xor um, Three, I think there are a number of investigators who have given this drug and they have been talking and I encourage anyone to talk to somebody who's given a lot of this drug. And I've been told so many things about what it's like for an investigator to watch somebody take this drug that I cannot even repeat because there were quotations that I was banned from ever saying again, which I thought was fascinating. So, you know, I don't understand this. And I really don't understand doctors um, on Twitter who say, well, at least we got another option. You know, patients don't just want options. They want good options or better options. And we have maybe 10 to 20 options uh, in this space that one might consider giving different combinations of chemotherapy. We want better options than what we have. Um, and if you really do believe that we just want options and you think this drug with this side effect profile and 28% ORR and this selection filter is good data, you know, then I think your standards are very low. And then somebody might say, well, you know, why why don't we make it, it a 14 weeks, 28 weeks? And you'll say, yeah, yeah, it's another option. And then they say, you know what? Why do we even need a 28% response rate? Let's make it 20%, 15%, 12%, 6%. Um, They're going to keep pushing you, and you're going to have a very difficult time articulating what your grounds for approval is. My grounds for approval is simple. In situations that are not unmet medical needs, and I do not believe this is an unmet medical need, you need a randomized control trial showing you're better than standard of care. In situations that are unmet medical needs, then I'm more flexible for a surrogate approval based on response rate with a confirmatory study that should have accrued at the time of approval because I want to make sure it gets done. I don't want to hear any excuses about why it couldn't accrue. What is an unmet medical need? I would encourage people to read my paper on unmet medical need, where we've mapped it, the language use of unmet medical need, and you can see clearly that it is used inappropriately in a number of situations, including, I would say, this particular situation of relapsed or quote-unquote refractory DLBCL. And again, the title, Cell in Patients with Relapsed or Refractory DLBCL, I mean, it should be quote-unquote refractory, because it is not everybody's definition of refractory it is a definition of refractory that has a big filter in which is you have to be refractory but not getting any treatment and still alive and well and able to be enrolled in this protocol 14 weeks later that is quite something so i mean i would say aj um mk and nk who wrote the paper aj who's like in the middle somewhere who is somebody with a, like a lot of background in medical writing mk who's the ceo of the company and NK is the first author. They're the three who wrote the paper, of course. Um you know, they've written a paper that we should have pushed back on hard. It should have been really edited more forcefully and shouldn't allow to have all these sorts of com- cross trial comparisons. They don't need to say parenteral every time they mention pola, for instance, uh, you know, drawing attention to the fact that this is oral. Um, you know, I think um a number of these things, uh, language choices could have been fixed. And then the FDA, of course, you know, they should say no to approving these drugs, but I think the market will, will decide for this product. And I suspect the market will be that I don't think it will get any substantive use. Um, only 30% of people had had previous stem cell transplant. Um, I don't know what else to say. Not very, not very interesting to me, not very useful for my practice, not a very, uh, not a drug that I'm going to be very positive about. Um, really, uh, I think if anything, this speaks to just how low the bar has fallen for drug approval, how problematic the status quo is that extremely costly drugs can come to market with data like this. It's just a disservice for patients. People with this condition should be offended, offended that this is the kind of data that. That society deems appropriate that basically what we're saying is we're going to take a bunch of taxpayer money as a society we're going to funnel it to the makers of these products and this is what they're going to offer you no assurance you live a longer life no assurance you live a better life no assurance you're better or less toxic than any other comparator despite whatever cross trial comparison might be done with caution no it shouldn't be done at all um, based on tons of selection filters in a study this is really—it's really sad. I mean, I don't even like reviewing uncontrolled studies. You know, I promise somebody I'm going to do um, the uh, Her2 antibody drug conjugate on a future episode, but I don't like—I don't even like reproving this because you know, there's not really a lot of clever things to point out to you. It's just a lot of really obvious things that are disappointing and sad, and and should make us all sad to be in the field of oncology. That you know, we that we have allowed oncology to become the kind of place where drugs like this get approval, and there's still people who say that it's a good to approve because it's another option. I mean, that speaks volumes about the state of our field. And I guess I'm disappointed in our field for for this paper, for this approval. And on a positive note, we'll turn to our interview with Dr. Katsalakis and Dr. Kelly. So I'm back here in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom with Dr. Katsalakis and Dr. Kelly. Dr. Katsalakis is Associate Professor of Radiation Oncology um, in Tampa, Florida, and Dr. Kelly is Professor of Medicine and Oncology at uh, Duke University, and they are the authors of a really wonderful paper that came out in the JCO Precision Oncology, Comparison of Annotation Services for Next Generation Sequencing in a Large Precision Oncology Program. Specifically here, we're talking about the VA National Precision Oncology Program. Um, Dr. Katsalakis, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure for us to be here with you. Thank you.
0: Practically illegal what we're doing, but it's great to see you. Um, So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, uh, what was it that led you to um, to pick this question? You know, what led you to to look at whether or not NGS results um, have sort of similar recommendations in different sort of data sets, like Watson, like Uncle KB? What made you think of this question? Where did it come from?
1: Um, well, a lot of this uh, also is through the mentorship of uh, Dr. Kelly, because I'm a radiation oncologist. But, um uh, you know, I, we have a lot of uh, information, rapid information coming out. Um, there's a lot of uh, testing that's happening annually. Um, you know, in the United States, uh, the radiation oncologists, we also look at NGS uh, reports as well. And so I think, um, it, it sort of behooves all of us to try to, um, understand what the NGS reports mean right. and, and interpret them. And so, um the uh VA was uh, lucky enough to have be gifted um Watson for genomics. Um and we also have um an open source from um from kettering to look at annotation. I see and um we thought it was a very uh, important question that would help um not only, you know, oncology uh, you know in the VA specifically. Um, but also outside of the VA, um, and there are a lot of efforts in the VA now um, being led um, by Dr. Uh, Kelly to um, create uh, an internal dashboard of annotations, um, interpretations in the VA to, to help VA physicians. But we thought this work would be meaningful, not just for the VA, but for the oncology community at
0: large. And I think that that's, um, that's definitely the case. I mean, this is meaningful work. And, um, you know, I guess if I were to try to explain this a little bit, um, uh, it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, you know, what we increasingly find is people are running NGS in sort of broad tumor types. Of course, we're all familiar with sort of the, the known druggable targets, uh, BRAF V600 melanoma, um, uh, uh, ALK uh, rearrangements in non-small cell lung cancer. I mean, these are things that we've known for many years. But increasingly, are we moving towards sort of broad gene panels, like foundations, medicines, 324 gene panels. Panel, um, I, and I'm going to ask you in a second how many genes are in the VA panel. But I know a couple years ago the VA actually made the decision to cover broad NGS in a number of tumor types, and that's been I think adopted uh, to different degrees by different VA physicians. And I should admit that I've spent a lot of time practicing at the VA as well, so I have some experience. Um, and then what happens is you get you get a report, you you get a report. You might learn a patient with um, you know multiple myeloma has an FGFR mutation, or a patient with cholangiocarcinoma has a BRAF mutation, or a patient has a mutation in TSC one or a patient has a P53 mutation. In fact, that's probably the most common thing we'll find. And what you do is you, you look over at one of these sort of annotation, um, guides like Watson, like uncle KB. And you say like, what level is this? And of course, level one really clear. Those are FDA approved drugs exist for this tumor type and this mutation. So that's the vemurafenib in melanoma. That's the crizotinib in ALK. Um, level two, a is it's a standard of care biomarker. Um, that predicts a response uh, to an FDA-approved drug in this indication, um, level 2b is it's actually known for a different indication. Um, so maybe it's uh, BRAF in melanoma that you're extrapolating to myeloma. 3A, according to Watson, is compelling clinical evidence, which we can talk about. 4 is uh, compelling biological evidence. Um, so I guess I want to say um, uh, level 1 is something that is, I think, there's it, it, that's something that's objective. We all agree what's FDA approved. We know what that is. Uh, some of the other ones, there's a bit of gray in there. Is that fair to say?
1: uh yes and in fact um uh i think mean, there's a lot of a lot of gray and um, and in fact um, even even uncle kb actually in their recent uh updates uh, this year is modifying their levels of evidence I so see. they're actually i think combining um uh 2a with 2b uh, together and i uh, you know we can look through the website but um, they're, they're modifying them as well, so even the definitions of the levels of evidence aren't completely clear cut. So you know it's important to even even the levels aren't completely mapped out clearly amongst the annotation services. And I'm actually doing now some more specific, and I'm I'm actually learning their annotations. So um, uh, yeah, I think I think uh, there's a lot of uh, information that also needs to be gleaned from from the other levels of evidence, which is why. Um, that's the next part of our of our study, um, that's our, part of our future work is to look at the other levels and um, compare them between the services, because so I think we'll find a lot more, uh, you know, less concordance than we did for the level one.
0: Yeah, so so let's talk about this concordance. I mean, there's, you know, two general ways to measure concordance. Um, one is percent agreement, um, and the other is Cohen's Kappa. And you do a great job of providing both. Um, I, I'm, of course, I'm obviously a big fan of Cohen's Kappa. And I guess the way I think about it is, um, you know, um, if something is a rare event, if, you know, most uh, things are, um, you know, negative, but positives are infrequent, you can often have a very high percent agreement by chance alone, that if somebody just coded everything as negative and 99% are negative, um, they can have high agreement with somebody else just coding everything as negative um, in, a, in a world where there are few, uh, you know, type A outcomes or, you know, positive outcomes. Um, and that's sort of long standing has been recognized as a concern of percent agreement. And Cohen, I think, recognized that and made Cohen. Kappa which is a nice way to say what is the agreement here beyond chance agreement and I think that's the that's the sort of really clever way of looking at it and and what you find in your study is when it comes to level one um, and and other levels um, why don't you tell us you know what kind of percent agreements did you find what kind of Cohen's Kappa and how do you interpret that
1: so I think for for pathogenicity there was uh, a large uh, variability. And between um, these services. So for pathogenicity, um, we had the commercial service um, NF1 um, and Watson for Genomics as well as Uncle KB. So we looked at those three um, different annotations for, mm-hmm. for, excuse me, for pathogenicity and um, there was uh, 30% uh, agreement um, between um, Watson for Genomics and uh, NF1. Uh, there was 76% agreement between, um, uh, Watson for genomics and Uncle KB, Um, and there was, uh, finally a 42% agreement between no one and Uncle KB. Um, so there's a varying, there's a large uh, variation, a uh, variability in terms of, um, pathogenicity, uh, importance in terms of percent-wise is from 30 to 76%. Um, and, uh, the Kappa also was, a uh, for, uh, Based on their on the score for kappa, yeah. Um, uh, so you know, one being a perfect uh, correlation, and um, zero being due to chance. Right. Um, you know, we had uh, you know anywhere from minus point two six to <laughs> 0.22 and then a minus point zero seven. So. Um, there was some negative uh, you know, correlation and then some a little slightly positive correlation for the Watson for Jones and KB. It was 0.22. So um, I think it's considered poor agreement um, when we look at the Kappa.
0: Let me ask you this. When you talk about um, for pathogenicity, um, that's, that's slightly different than saying, um, you know, is this druggable? Is this actionable? Is that right. fair to say? So can, maybe un- unpack that a little bit for us. Like, what does it mean to be a pathogenic mutation and what does it mean to be a druggable mutation?
1: Yeah, so uh, pathogenic mutation uh, typically, um, you know, one that is oncogenic or likely oncogenic and it's um, diagnosis agnostic, so it's not dependent on um, um, diagnosis of the cancer um, and it's unclear how, uh, you know, if you have multiple mutations or how they would all sort of uh, work together it's just that they're known to cause cancer I see. but based off of those numbers is where um, actionability actually uh, is derived. So if we don't if we don't catch those um, cases correctly initially for pathogenicity, then we may not look at them for actionability uh, when we're actually looking at the tissue diagnoses and then um, annotating uh, the gene variant um, and diagnoses. So it's important actually to catch them at at the initial um, annotation when we're when we're evaluating the pathogenicity. Otherwise. Um, they're not in the in the group where we're analyzing the action the actionability as well i see so
0: pathogenicity is a prerequisite for you to even consider actionability if it is not pathogenic uh it it cannot be actionable but um but the converse is not true merely because something is pathogenic such as p53 loss perhaps uh doesn't mean it's actionable because there's no way good way to restore p53 potentially right
1: exactly
0: Dr. Kelly, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about sort of the broader context here of what's going on in the VA in terms of NGS. Um, To what degree has the VA offered NGS to patients? To what degree are doctors using it? And how do you find doctors um, use it? Where do they like it? Where are they frustrated by it? Where are they confused by results? Um, How are you finding that process, Dr. Kelly?
2: Right. Well, first of all, there are over 600 oncologists in the VA. So, some broad spectrum of expertise and experiences with um, our program, uh, which is called the National Precision Oncology Program, or NPOP for short. Um, We actually did a qualitative study uh, that was also uh, published recently, Um, actually I think it's film press, that looked at the acceptability of the program and their experience, and uh, I won't really go into too many details, but I'll just say that there were some Um, Comments about the reports, uh, Mm -hmm. in particular, about how complex they were and difficult to interpret. Um, And then some other, um, I guess, internal machinations of how the program is actually executed that uh, we've implemented is in terms of a change management approach. But it is broadly available across the VA. Uh, The VA has about 120 uh, hospitals that treat patients with cancer. And Mm -hmm. um, some NGS has been performed through our program and almost all of them. Um, now, the degree to which it's being performed varies greatly between different facilities. Some of that's based on capacity, but a lot of it's just uptake. Uh, we don't capture all of the NGS that's being done because some of it's being done outside of our program. Um, but we're um, currently doing approximately uh, about 11 to 1,200 uh, tumor samples a month. Um, so it's quite, it's a pretty big volume when you look at it from that perspective, but um, it's when you look at it from the perspective of patients who should be NGS, uh, there's still room for improvement as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. So looking at patients with advanced stage uh, non-squamous, um, non-small cell lung carcinoma, yeah. um, sort of the top performers are right around uh, maybe 45 50%. Uh, of course, you don't know um, what percent of those patients are actually uh, suitable for treatment. It might be about that amount. Um, and so those are the top performers, but some of the low performers are, you know, scraping the bottom. I see. That's a so, that's a
0: that's a yeah that's an interesting point you know so um you know a condition like uh, uh, non squamous non small cell lung cancer uh you know there are a bunch of things we want to know about EGFR uh, ALK ROS one RET MET now exon skipping MET um you know there are a number of things we want to know about and uh, NGS is sort of a harmonious way of getting that answer um, on the flip side you know there are tumor types like pancreas cancer where you know you could give me a lot of genomic data and I would struggle as an oncologist to tell you what I should do with it um, but. It's also kind of seductive. If I knew there's a TSC1 mutation, um, you know, Everlimus maybe is coming out of my pocket. So I guess, you know, how do you think about maybe the second scenario? I mean, I guess on the first scenario, I think we'll all agree we want to optimize that. On the second scenario, uh, you know, you're in the VA. Um, the budget is often fixed, particularly by site. There's sort of a certain, um, you know, pharm- pharmacy budget. And you got a doctor out there who finds a certain mutation in pancreas and wants to try something. Um, how do you think? How do you think through those dilemmas?
2: right but that's exactly the the application of uh eva's uh, research right Um, and we have a a national um, consult service that will do patient level reviews of the patient's uh, history and also their ngs results and make a recommendation by applying the levels of evidence to that and we actually will do our own literature review on top of any information services that we have Um, so this it's it's and it's not a um, cut-and-dry um, response, and you can tell, I mean, my, my conclusion from Eva's work is that there's not an, enough precision in precision oncology mm-hmm. um, because you get different answers depending on who you ask. Yes. Uh, but anyway, so we're trying to, to amplify that uh, availability and in the, in the uh, systematic review of the NGS results for patients. We provide that expert service. Um, and then coming back to your initial question is, is, well, should you even do the test? So we will chime in on that approach as well. But we've also um, thought about which patients we should focus on and which patients we should de-emphasize or even say we don't need to do that. Um, and there's sort of some hematologic malignancies for which we have a panel available that we could do them on, but we've decided you really can just do a small focused uh, gene set, and you don't need to do this big, you know, six, seven hundred uh, panel um, assay. Um, and and but you're right. So pancreatic cancer, we, we're actually doing that. We're doing somatic right. sequencing uh, to look for the you know the HRD mutations. Right. Uh, but you know, my thought is, okay, well, what about um, melanoma? Right? right. How frequently do you find something other than DRAF. Right. Um, and a few others if it's a non-cutaneous uh, melanoma. Anyway, so those are all the right questions. Oh, uh, no, yeah, it,
0: that's great. But tell me a little bit more about, you know, so the hematologic malignancy that you, you that you have found you can get away with a tailored panel. Are you talking about AML, or where, what are you talking about there?
2: Uh, we, we pretty much, uh, if, uh, there are very few hematologic malignancies that we think that we need to do this big panel Right,
0: on. I agree, okay.
2: Um, and that's both the lymphomas, uh, B cells, T cells, and all of the uh, myeloid ones. So right. there are a few unusual um, clinical presentations where we're not sure exactly what it is, we think that that might be helpful. Um, and then um, in, in rare cases, uh, the physician will make a case that, you know, I really need to have the, these other, you know, three or four genes and I can't get it easily uh, another way, and then we'll um, say okay to that.
0: That's but well, yeah.
2: For, for mostly for AML, MDS, we, we don't recommend uh, the gene panel.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just need to know a handful of things, uh, maybe flip three ITD status, flip three TKD, and uh, um, just a few things you really need to know. Um, And then beyond that, I think it's a lot of speculation. And there's always this temptation to chuck something into the regimen. So let's add something to AZA. Let's add something to seven plus three. Uh, But I think the reality is uh, it's costly. It's toxic. It can compromise the seven plus three. And I don't always know if people are going to live longer, live better. And that's the challenge that I see there. Um, so I, you know, I think that that's so important to ask. Um, and I guess the same thing for lymphoma, um, that, you know, uh, it, It wasn't that long ago where the enthusiasm that we would like, you know, need to know about BTK pathway alterations, and this is going to change all the treatment that was riding oh so high. Um, Now we've had a bunch of negative studies from, you know, the incorporation of ibrutinib, um, uh, Revlimid studies in the frontline setting uh, that really have been kind of sobering saying that, you know, maybe ABC GCB subtype is not that clinically relevant. And maybe, uh, you know, you don't need to know it right off the bat. You're nodding your head. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So and, and you know, I'm not sure that we know um exactly where the right breakpoint right is. We have done a cost efficacy study yes. after that question, and it's it's interesting. The interpretation is is that uh none of it is very cost effective. Yes. But the cost effectiveness is not very high. But applying the technology improves the quality of life. Um and so what is uh the right answer? And so VA has chosen to provide the highest quality of life and that we'll have to just ask Congress and others to support the, the services. I see. So we think that's the right thing to do for our patients.
0: Right. And, um, and certainly, it's certainly the way in which uh, cancer is progressing in so many places that this is sort of, yeah. the, sort of the future direction. And so, yeah. um, you know, the VA is probably very um, uh, cognizant of not uh, lagging behind, but being right there on the forefront walking alongside. Let me ask you one question that you alluded to in your manuscript in the discussion, and this is my last question for you because I know you have to jump off. you know, you talked about the SHIVA study, which is a, a randomized control trial, um, you know, where people were underwent sequencing and were allocated in one of three sort of umbrella buckets. You know, they had pathway mutations in, uh, um, a, in um, uh, hormone receptor signaling. Um, uh, it's been a while since I looked at it, but I think, uh, anyway, I, I'll skip that part. But they have pathway mutations in three pathways. They're randomized to a drug that's targeted to that pathway or physician's choice. Um, presumably, they don't know what pathway mutations they have. And it was really kind of a super sobering study I thought because we failed to improve even the modest primary endpoint of progression free survival you allude to that in your discussion um how do you think about that Shiva study um, and you know and and how do you sort of make sense of it in terms of how we've sort of just really roared past past it
2: yeah I, I think I think that last phrase is really the my current interpretation is, is that study is now quite old mm-hmm. and and especially for some uh, cancer types. and I mean, I'm a lung cancer uh, doctor, so for, to me, you can't do just a couple genes anymore, and you're going to miss in, huge clinical impacts if you try to do that. So when that study came, the came out, I can't remember what year it was published, maybe 2015-ish, around, around that era. Yeah. Um, you know, there weren't as many drugs available, and they weren't as good. Um, and so for us to, to, to say, oh, we're never going to... Revisit that when the science changes, the medications improve, the number of genes that are actionable now is much higher. So I think that is just yeah. Uh, yeah. in the past from my perspective. Uh, and there are other studies that support uh, increased uh, quality of life and, and actually even survival now, uh, not randomized like that, but they do support that. So I think that's where we are.
0: Okay, Dr. Katsalakis, I I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, some of these mutations are, um, you know, exquisitely druggable. Um, And other mutations are dubious. Um, When I read compelling clinical evidence, you know, sometimes I look into that and it it can mean all sorts of things. It can mean we did a phase two trial with, you know, 20 people and there's a, you know, 10% mutation. Uh, Sometimes I feel like people mean that, you know, we have laboratory in vitro evidence that this target should work in this tumor type. Um, You know, would it be more helpful if instead of this hierarchy, they just said exactly what the evidence was, like level one FDA proof, level two response rate in a group of 50 people or more? Uh, is 50 percent level three response rate in a group of 20 people or more is 20 percent you know if they just broke it down exactly what we know level four it's never been given to a human being you know um uh, so how do you translate this this sort of language into um you know what exactly we know and what exactly we don't know
1: um well i think i think it's difficult to directly translate it uh i think uh you know, obviously, the numbers and the evidence matters. I mean, and having stricter criteria in order to to, to identify uh, measures of, of outcomes. Uh, I know you you also allude to that in, in your in your um, book. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, so, you have a sneak so, preview of what I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so so not just this uh, criteria, which uh, anyway I agree with. But how do I say this? So um, uh, I think it is important to have. Um, you know, stricter, uh, measures of outcomes and, and it would be a great idea actually to, uh, try to link these to, to outcomes measures, just like, uh, they kind of do with Rhesus, right? right? With, uh, you know, 25% response rate, 30%, 50%. So, so it's sort of a similar, um, concept that would be great actually if they did that for outcomes data, um, and then, uh, uh really like tried to link the, you know the levels of of, um, of evidence uh, and harmonize them with outcomes, and then harmonize them with each uh, service that annotates uh, the significance of, of of these of these genes and and their actionability. So, I mean, in a, an ideal world, they would all be harmonized, and we would clearly understand what each level means. Um, uh, but uh, I think you know it's a work in progress. Um, and uh, I think a lot of work needs to be done in that front.
0: Um, yeah, that's, that's well put. Um, you know, when I, read, when I look over your paper, um, I think it's super important. Um, it's obviously a ton of work um, because you're looking across, um, you know, a number of different annotation services for a lot of patients with a lot of mutations. Um, and the fact that the kappas are generally, at, you know, at best moderate and at worst poor, I think it's really concerning, and I think, you know, um, you put it well in the manuscript that there's a lot of imprecision in precision oncology, and this is kind of lending itself to that. I wonder, um, you know, are there any other kind of major takeaways you think um, readers should know when they um, look at this paper uh, on JCO precision oncology?
1: Well, that's also in the discussion section, can cognitive uh, computing take over, uh, you know, molecular tumor boards? Um, I think a lot of uh, whether that will be the case and, and you know and whether which service is better than the other isn't clearly defined so I don't know that we even um, know which service is superior right to the others um, some uh, like uncle um, okay, KB didn't have a lot on um, MSI information so and I, that was in the in the review that you know that wasn't available but generally you know those were solid um, uh, gene mutation variants, so we, we tended to like, so OncoKBs tended. to, so I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't know which of all of the services, you know, was better than the others. Yeah. They're all, they all have, add different value. Um, I think one is um, the, the rapidity of, of information, right? And how fast uh, the, the information is coming out, um, that plays a role. Um, Watson is great for, you know, aggregating new information. And in the studies where we looked at, you know, that have been looked at, looking at Watson versus, you know, human tumor boards, um, Watson, you know, maybe had, um, some benefits, but that was because, you know, when, when it happened by chance, I guess that, that, um, you know, level, new level one, um, data had just come out after the tumor board had just kind of made their recommendation. So, I think timing also kind of matters, and and I don't know that um, the timing and then the rapidity of the information coming out this day, cognitive versus uh, versus uh, molecular, you know, human tumor board, um, and then the other thing is, you know, cognitive versus the other services, right? That's like which of the services um, was superior in detecting. Um, The right uh, uh, levels, and Mm -hmm. that's not really clear. I mean, we're not actually trying to answer that question quite just yet. I mean, that's the work in progress. I think everyone is trying to do um, nationally and internationally. Um, It's uh, so that's not not clear which which one is um, more correct in their in their assessment. I think. you know there is a you know the civic i think is a like sort of a crowdsourcing uh gene variant list that i'm starting to become involved with as well i, I mean there's a, there's so many platforms out there it's not completely clear right. um which one is is better um it's just i think um the you know every everything it's it's an imprecise science i think at this point and i think um you know, a lot more data mining needs to be done, um, and the other thing is too. I mean, how do we also uh, say we do? And this is a thing that you know is happening at the VA. How do we do we inform providers when new level one uh, data comes out on a gene on a patient of theirs that has undergone NGS testing, and we know uh, you know they 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 have this mutation. And so what the VA is doing is another effort, um, you know, for every time any new level one, um, evidence comes out, we actually go and comb through and find the patients that have those mutations and inform all the providers, um, just in case they can't keep track of all their patients. So that's another, another level that of, of, you know, even if you do have all the correct information, how do you get that out there once it's constantly changing? So there's a lot of deltas in terms of, you know, the information that's coming out and um, even what's being, you know, available, what's going to be made available to the provider to better care for the patient. And then the other is the outcomes. I mean, how yeah. much are, is all the targeted um, therapies? How are they, act, how much are they actually helping the patient? Um, and then, I mean, you know, quality of life, I guess, is uh, metrics are, you know, being used, but um, um, there's a lot of different ways to measure quality of of right. life and polys, and I don't, you know, that's a whole other separate discussion, right? So.
0: Yeah, but I think that that's a nice sort of lay of the land of, you know, where we are now and what we need in the future. Um, you know, so I guess I want to compliment you on the paper, um, and mm-hmm. I want to direct readers to it, and it's called. Um, Comparison of Annotation Services for Next-Generation Sequencing in a Large-Scale Precision Oncology Program. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's very interesting. Um, it's a great paper. And I look forward to, um, you know, future work that comes out in this space.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. And, you know, for the ability to, to, to talk with you and, and to, to touch base with your readers and and educate everyone as much as
0: we can. Thanks, I'm glad we're able to do it, despite all the forces that be that wanted to get in our way. So (laughs) thanks, (laughs) bye. Thank you, thank you so much. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes store supporters of this podcast can back us on patreon patreon allows you to support artists you like and patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on plenary session got questions for the show tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session at gmail.com we love fielding listener questions thanks for listening